0: Section 18 of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume One, by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Part Two Why the Accident Occurred. CHAPTER Five A, FROM CHALLENGER TO COLUMBIA. PART 1. Many accident investigations did not go far enough. They identify the technical cause of the accident, and then connect it to a variant of operator error, the line worker who forgot to insert the bolt, the engineer who miscalculated the stress, or the manager who made the wrong decision. But this is seldom the entire issue, WHEN THE DETERMINATIONS OF THE CAUSAL CHAIN ARE LIMITED TO THE TECHNICAL FLAW AND THE INDIVIDUAL FAILURE, TYPICALLY THE ACTIONS TAKEN TO PREVENT A SIMILAR EVENT IN THE FUTURE ARE ALSO LIMITED, FIX THE TECHNICAL PROBLEM OR REPLACE OR RETRAIN THE INDIVIDUAL RESPONSIBLE. PUTTING THESE CORRECTIONS IN PLACE LEADS TO ANOTHER MISTAKE, THE BELIEF THAT THE PROBLEM IS SOLVED. THE BOARD DID NOT WANT TO MAKE THESE ERRORS. Attempting to manage high-risk technologies while minimizing failures is an extraordinary challenge. By their nature, these complex technologies are intricate, with many interrelated parts. Standing alone, the components may be well understood, and have failure modes that can be anticipated. Yet when these components are integrated into a larger system, unanticipated interactions can occur, that lead to catastrophic outcomes. The risk of these complex systems is increased when they are produced and operated by complex organizations that also break down in unanticipated ways. In our view, the NASA organizational culture had as much to do with this accident as the foam. Organizational culture refers to the basic values, norms, beliefs, and practices that characterize the functioning of an institution. At the most basic level, organizational culture defines the assumptions that employees make as they carry out their work. It is a powerful force that can persist through reorganizations and the change of key personnel. It can be a positive or a negative force. In a report dealing with nuclear wastes, the National Research Council quoted Alvin Weinberg's classic statement about the Faustian bargain that nuclear scientists made with society, the price that we demand of society for this magical energy source is both a vigilance and a longevity of our social institutions that we are quite unaccustomed to. This is also true of the space program. At NASA's urging, the nation committed to building an amazing, if compromised, vehicle called the Space Shuttle when the agency did this it accepted the bargain to operate and maintain the shuttle in the safest possible way the board is not convinced that nasa has completely lived up to the bargain or that congress and the administration has provided the funding and support necessary for nasa to do so this situation needs to be addressed if the nation intends to keep conducting human space flight it needs to live up to its part of the bargain part two of this report examines NASA's organizational, historical, and cultural factors, as well as how these factors contributed to the accident. As with Part 1, this part begins with history. Chapter 5 examines the post-challenger history of NASA and its human spaceflight program. This includes reviewing the budget as well as organizational and management history, such as shifting management systems and locations. CHAPTER Six DOCUMENTS MANAGEMENT PERFORMANCE RELATED TO COLUMBIA TO ESTABLISH EVENTS ANALYZED IN LATER CHAPTERS. THE CHAPTER REVIEWS THE FOAM STRIKES, INTENSE SCHEDULE PRESSURE DRIVEN BY AN ARTIFICIAL REQUIREMENT TO DELIVER NODE 2 TO THE INTERNATIONAL SPACE STATION BY A CERTAIN DATE, AND NASA MANAGEMENT'S HANDLING OF CONCERNS REGARDING COLUMBIA DURING THE STS-107 MISSION. In Chapter 7, the Board presents its views of how high-risk activities should be managed, and lists the characteristics of institutions that emphasize high reliability results over economic efficiency or strict adherence to a schedule. This chapter measures the Space Shuttle Program's organizational and management practices against these principles, and finds them wanting. Chapter 7 defines the organizational cause and offers recommendations. Chapter 8 draws from the previous chapters on history, budgets, culture, organization, and safety practices and analyzes how all these factors contributed to this accident. This chapter captures the Board's views of the need to adjust management to enhance safety margins in shuttle operations and reaffirms the Board's position that without these changes we have no confidence that other corrective actions will improve the safety of shuttle operations the changes we recommend will be difficult to accomplish and will be internally resisted from challenger to columbia the board is convinced that the factors that led to the columbia accident go well beyond the physical mechanisms discussed in chapter three the causal roots of the accident can be traced in part to the turbulent post-Cold War policy environment in which NASA functioned during most of the years between the destruction of Challenger and the loss of Columbia. The end of the Cold War in the late 1980s meant that the most important political underpinning of NASA's human spaceflight program, the U.S.-Soviet space competition, was lost with no equally strong political objective to replace it no longer able to justify its projects with the kind of urgency that the superpower struggle had provided the agency could not obtain budget increases through the 1990s rather than adjust its ambitions to this new state of affairs nasa continued to push an ambitious agenda of space science and exploration including a costly space station program if NASA wanted to carry out that agenda, its only recourse, given its budget allocation, was to become more efficient, accomplishing more at less cost. The search for cost reduction led top NASA leaders over the past decade to downsize the shuttle workforce, outsource various shuttle program responsibilities, including safety oversight, and consider eventual privatization of the space shuttle program the program's budget was reduced by forty percent in purchasing power over the past decade and repeatedly raided to make up for space station cost overruns even as the program maintained a launch schedule in which the shuttle a developmental vehicle was used in an operational mode in addition the uncertainty of top policy makers in the white house congress and nasa as to how long the shuttle would fly before being replaced resulted in the delay of upgrades needed to make the Shuttle safer and to extend its service life. The Space Shuttle program has been transformed since the late 1980s implementation of post-challenger management changes in ways that raise questions addressed here and in later chapters of Part 2 about NASA's ability to safely operate the Space Shuttle. While it would be inaccurate to say that NASA managed the Space Shuttle program at the time of the Columbia accident in the same manner it did prior to Challenger, there are unfortunate similarities between the agency's performance and safety practices in both periods. 5.1. The Challenger Accident and its Aftermath The inherently vulnerable design of the Space Shuttle, described in Chapter 1, was a product of policy and technological compromises made at the time of its approval in 1972. That approval process also produced unreasonable expectations, even myths, about the Shuttle's future performance that NASA tried futilely to fulfill, as the Shuttle became operational, in 1982. At first, NASA was able to maintain the image of the Shuttle as an operational vehicle, during its early years of operation, the shuttle launched satellites, performed on-orbit research, and even took members of Congress into orbit. At the beginning of 1986, the goal of routine access to space, established by President Ronald Reagan in 1982, was ostensibly being achieved. That appearance soon proved illusory. On the cold morning of January 28, 1986, the Shuttle Challenger broke apart 73 seconds into its climb towards orbit. On board were Francis R. Scobie, Michael J. Smith, Ellison S. Onizuka, Judith A. Resnick, Ronald E. McNair, Sharon Christa McAuliffe, and Gregory B. Jarvis. All perished. Rogers Commission On February 3, 1986, President Reagan created the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger accident, which soon became known as the Rogers Commission after its chairman, former Secretary of State William Rogers. The commission's report, issued on June 6, 1986, concluded that the loss of Challenger was caused by the failure of the joint and seal between the two lower segments of the right solid rocket booster hot gases blew past a rubber o-ring in the joint, leading to a structural failure and the explosive burning of the shuttle's hydrogen fuel. While the Rogers Commission identified the failure of the solid rocket booster joint and seal as the physical cause of the accident, it also noted a number of NASA management failures that contributed to the catastrophe. The Rogers Commission concluded the decision to launch the Challenger was flawed, communication failures, incomplete and misleading information, and poor management judgments all figured in a decision-making process that permitted, in the words of the Commission, internal flight safety problems to bypass key shuttle managers. As a result, if those making the launch decision had known all the facts, it is highly unlikely that they would have decided to launch. Far from meticulously guarding against potential problems, the commission found that NASA had required a contractor to prove that it was not safe to launch, rather than proving that it was safe. The commission also found that NASA had missed warning signs of the impending accident. When the joint began behaving in unexpected ways, neither NASA nor the solid rocket motor manufacturer Morton Thiokol adequately tested the joint to determine the source of these deviations from specifications or developed a solution to them, even though the problems frequently recurred. Nor did they respond to internal warnings about the faulty seal. Instead, Morton Thiokol and NASA management came to see the problems as an acceptable flight risk, a violation of a design requirement that could be tolerated. During this period of increasing uncertainty about the joint's performance, the Commission found that NASA's safety system had been silent. Of the management, organizational, and communication failures that contributed to the accident, four related to faults within the safety system, including a lack of problem reporting requirements, inadequate trend analysis, misrepresentation of criticality, and lack of involvement in critical discussions. The checks and balances the safety system was meant to provide were not working. Still another factor influenced the decisions that led to the accident. The Rogers Commission noted that the shuttle's increasing flight rate in the mid-1980s created a schedule pressure, including the compression of training schedules, a shortage of spare parts, and the focusing of resources on near-term problems. NASA managers may have forgotten partly because of past success, partly because of their own well-nurtured image of the program, that the shuttle was still in a research and development phase. The Challenger accident had profound effects on the U.S. space program. On August 15, 1986, President Reagan announced that NASA will no longer be in the business of launching private satellites, the accident ended Air Force and Intelligence Community reliance on the shuttle to launch national security payloads, prompted the decision to abandon the yet-to-be-opened shuttle launch site at Vandenberg Air Force Base, and forced the development of improved expendable launch vehicles. A 1992 White House Advisory Committee concluded that the recovery from the Challenger disaster cost the country $12 billion. Which included the cost of building the replacement orbiter Endeavour. It took NASA thirty two months after the Challenger accident to redesign and requalify the solid rocket booster and to return the shuttle to flight. The first post accident flight was launched on september twenty ninth, nineteen eighty eight. As the shuttle returned to flight, NASA Associate Administrator for Spaceflight, Richard Truly, commented we will always have to treat it the shuttle like an R&D test program even many years into the future i don't think calling it operational fooled anybody within the program it was a signal to the public that shouldn't have been sent selected rogers commission recommendations the faulty solid rocket motor joint and seal must be changed this could be a new design eliminating the joint or a redesign of the current joint and seal no design options should be prematurely precluded because of schedule cost or reliance on existing hardware all solid rocket motor joints should satisfy the following the joints should be fully understood tested and verified the certification of the new design should include tests which duplicate the actual launch configuration as closely as possible Tests over the full range of operating conditions, including temperature. Full consideration should be given to conducting static firings of the exact flight configuration in a vertical attitude. The shuttle program structure should be reviewed. The project managers for the various elements of the shuttle program felt more accountable to their center management than to the shuttle program organization. NASA should encourage the transition of qualified astronauts into agency management positions. NASA should establish an Office of Safety, Reliability, and Quality Assurance to be headed by an associate administrator, reporting directly to the NASA administrator. It would have direct authority for safety, reliability, and quality assurance throughout the agency the office should be assigned the workforce to ensure adequate oversight of its functions, and should be independent of other NASA functional and program responsibilities. NASA should establish an STS safety advisory panel reporting to the STS program manager. The charter of this panel should include shuttle operational issues, launch commit criteria, flight rules, flight readiness, and risk management. The Commission found that Marshall Space Flight Center project managers, because of a tendency at Marshall to management isolation, failed to provide full and timely information bearing on the safety of Flight 51L, the Challenger mission, to other vital elements of shuttle program management. NASA should take energetic steps to eliminate this tendency at Marshall Space Flight Center, whether by changes of personnel, organization, indoctrination, or all three. The nation's reliance on the Shuttle, as its principal space launch capability, created a relentless pressure on NASA to increase the flight rate. NASA must establish a flight rate that is consistent with its resources. The Shuttle Program After Return to Flight after the Rogers Commission report was issued, NASA made many of the organizational changes the Commission recommended. The Space Agency moved management of the Space Shuttle program from the Johnson Space Center to NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. The intent of this change was to create a management structure resembling that of the Apollo program, with the aim of preventing communication deficiencies that had contributed to the Challenger accident, NASA also established an Office of Safety, Reliability, and Quality Assurance at its headquarters, although that office was not given the direct authority over all of NASA's safety operations, as the Rogers Commission had recommended. Rather, NASA human spaceflight centers each retained their own safety organization, reporting to the center director. In the almost fifteen years between the return to flight and the loss of Columbia, the shuttle was again being used on a regular basis to conduct space-based research and in line with nasa's original 1969 vision to build and service a space station the shuttle flew 87 missions during this period compared to 24 before challenger highlights from these missions include the 1990 launch 1993 repair and 1999 and 2002 servicing of the Hubble Space Telescope, the launch of several major planetary probes, a number of Shuttle Space Lab missions devoted to scientific research, nine missions to rendezvous with the Russian space station Mir, the return of former Mercury astronaut Senator John Glenn to orbit in October 1998, and the launch of the first U.S. elements of the International Space Station. After the Challenger accident, the Shuttle was no longer described as operational, in the same sense as commercial aircraft. Nevertheless, NASA continued planning as if the Shuttle could be readied for launch at or near whatever date was set. Tying the Shuttle closely to International Space Station needs, such as crew rotation, added to the urgency of maintaining a predictable launch schedule, the shuttle is currently the only means to launch the already-built European, Japanese, and remaining U.S. modules needed to complete the station assembly and to carry and return most experiments and on-orbit supplies. Even after three occasions when technical problems grounded the shuttle fleet for a month or more, NASA continued to assume that the shuttle could regularly and predictably service the station. In recent years, this coupling between the station and the shuttle has become the primary driver of the shuttle launch schedule. Whenever a shuttle launch is delayed, it impacts the station, assembly, and operations. In September 2001, testimony on the shuttle's achievements during the preceding decade by NASA's then Deputy Associate Administrator for Spaceflight, William Reddy, indicated the assumptions under which NASA was operating during that period. The Space Shuttle has made dramatic improvements in the capabilities, operations, and safety of the system. The payload-to-orbit performance of the Space Shuttle has been significantly improved, by over 70% to the space station. The safety of the Space Shuttle has also been dramatically improved, by reducing risk by more than a factor of five. In addition, the operability of the system has been significantly improved, with five-minute launch windows, which would not have been attempted a decade ago, now becoming routine. This record of success is a testament to the quality and dedication of the Space Shuttle management team and workforce, both civil servants and contractors. 5.2. The NASA Human Space Flight Culture Though NASA underwent many management reforms in the wake of the Challenger accident, and appointed new directors at the Johnson, Marshall, and Kennedy centers, the agency's powerful human spaceflight culture remained intact, as did many institutional practices, even if in a modified form. As a close observer of NASA's organizational culture has observed, cultural norms tend to be fairly resilient the norms bounce back into shape after being stretched or bent. Beliefs held in common throughout the organization resist alteration. This culture, as will become clear across the chapters of Part Two of this report, acted over time to resist externally imposed change. By the eve of the Columbia accident, institutional practices that were in effect at the time of the Challenger accident such as inadequate concern over deviations from expected performance, a silent safety program, and schedule pressure, had returned to NASA. Note, ORGANIZATIONAL CULTURE Organizational culture refers to the basic values, norms, beliefs, and practices that characterize the functioning of a particular institution, at the most basic level, organizational culture defines the assumptions that employees make as they carry out their work. It defines the way we do things here. An organization's culture is a powerful force that persists through reorganizations and the departure of key personnel. End note. The human spaceflight culture within NASA originated in the Cold War environment, the Space Agency itself was created in 1958 as a response to the Soviet launch of Sputnik, the first artificial Earth satellite. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy charged the new Space Agency with the task of reaching the Moon before the end of the decade, and asked Congress and the American people to commit the immense resources for doing so, even though, at the time, NASA had only accumulated fifteen minutes of human spaceflight experience. With its efforts linked to the U.S.-Soviet competition for global leadership, there was a sense in the NASA workforce that the agency was engaged in a historic struggle central to the nation's agenda. The Apollo era created at NASA an exceptional can-do culture, marked by tenacity in the face of seemingly impossible challenges this culture valued the interaction among research and testing hands-on engineering experience and a dependence on the exceptional quality of its workforce and leadership that provided in-house technical capability to oversee the work of contractors the culture also accepted risk and failure as inevitable aspects of operating in space even as it held as its highest value attention to detail in order to lower the chances of failure the dramatic Apollo 11 lunar landing in July 1969 fixed NASA's achievements in the national consciousness and in history. However, the numerous accolades in the wake of the moon landing also helped reinforce the NASA staff's faith in their organizational culture. Apollo successes created the powerful image of the space agency as a perfect place as the best organization that human beings could create to accomplish selected goals. During Apollo, NASA was in many respects a highly successful organization, capable of achieving seemingly impossible feats. The continuing image of NASA as a perfect place in the years after Apollo left NASA employees unable to recognize that NASA never had been, and still was not perfect, nor was it as symbolically important in the continuing Cold War struggle as it had been for the first decade of its existence. NASA personnel maintained a vision of their agency that was rooted in the glories of an earlier time, even as the world, and thus the context within which the space agency operated, changed around them. As a result, NASA's human spaceflight culture never fully adapted to the Space Shuttle program, with its goal of routine access to space, rather than further exploration beyond low-Earth orbit. The Apollo-era organizational culture came to be in tension with the more bureaucratic space agency of the 1970s, whose focus had turned from designing new spacecraft at any expense to repetitively flying a reusable vehicle on an ever-tightening budget this trend toward bureaucracy and the associated increased reliance on contracting necessitated more effective communications and more extensive safety oversight processes than had been in place during the apollo era but the rogers commission found that such features were lacking in the aftermath of the challenger accident these contradictory forces prompted a resistance to externally imposed changes and an attempt to maintain the internal belief that NASA was still a perfect place, alone in its ability to execute a program of human spaceflight. Within NASA centers, as human spaceflight program managers strove to maintain their view of the organization, they lost their ability to accept criticism, leading them to reject the recommendations of many boards and blue-ribbon panels, the Rogers Commission among them. External Criticism and Doubt rather than spurring NASA to change for the better, instead reinforced the will to impose the party-line vision on the environment, not to reconsider it, according to one authority on organizational behavior. This in turn led to flawed decision-making, self-deception, introversion, and a diminished curiosity about the world outside the perfect place. The NASA human spaceflight culture the board found during its investigation manifested many of these characteristics—in particular, a self-confidence about NASA possessing unique knowledge about how to safely launch people into space. As will be discussed later in this chapter, as well as in Chapters 6, 7, and 8, the Board views this cultural resistance as a fundamental impediment to NASA's effective organizational performance. What the Experts Have Said WARNINGS OF A SHUTTLE ACCIDENT Shuttle reliability is uncertain, but has been estimated to range between 97 and 99%. If the shuttle reliability is 98%, there would be a fifty-fifty chance of losing an orbiter within 34 flights. The probability of maintaining at least three orbiters in the shuttle fleet declines to less than 50% after Flight 113, THE OFFICE OF TECHNOLOGY ASSESSMENT, 1989 And although it is a subject that meets with reluctance to open discussion, and has therefore too often been relegated to silence, the statistical evidence indicates that we are likely to lose another space shuttle in the next several years, probably before the planned space station is completely established on orbit. This would seem to be the weak link in the civil space program. UNPLEASANT TO RECOGNIZE, INVOLVING ALL THE UNCERTAINTIES OF STATISTICS AND DIFFICULT TO RESOLVE. THE AUGUSTINE COMMITTEE, 1990. SHUTTLE AS A DEVELOPMENTAL VEHICLE. SHUTTLE IS ALSO A COMPLEX SYSTEM THAT HAS YET TO DEMONSTRATE AN ABILITY TO ADHERE TO A FIXED SCHEDULE. THE AUGUSTINE COMMITTEE, 1990. NASA HUMAN SPACEFLIGHT CULTURE. NASA HAS NOT BEEN SUFFICIENTLY RESPONSIVE TO VALID CRITICISM AND TO THE NEED FOR CHANGE. THE AUGUSTINE COMMITTEE, 1990. 5.3. AN AGENCY TRYING TO DO TOO MUCH WITH TOO LITTLE. A strong indicator of the priority the national political leadership assigns to a federally funded activity is its budget, by that criterion, NASA's space activities have not been high on the list of national priorities over the past three decades (see Figure 5.3-) 1. After a peak during the Apollo program, when NASA's budget was almost four percent of the federal budget, NASA's budget since the early 1970s has hovered at one percent of federal spending or less. Particularly in recent years, as the national leadership has confronted the challenging task of allocating scarce public resources across many competing demands, NASA has had difficulty obtaining a budget allocation adequate to its continuing ambitions. In 1990, the White House chartered a Blue Ribbon Committee chaired by Aerospace Executive Norman Augustine to conduct a sweeping review of NASA and its programs in response to shuttle problems and the flawed mirror on the Hubble Space Telescope. The review found that NASA's budget was inadequate for all the programs the agency was executing, saying that NASA is currently overcommitted in terms of program obligations relative to resources available. In short, it is trying to do too much and allowing too little margin for the unexpected, a reinvigorated space program, the Augustine Committee went on to say, will require real growth in the NASA budget of approximately 10% per year through the year 2000, reaching a peak spending level of about $30 billion per year in constant 1990 dollars by about the year 2000. Translated into the actual dollars of fiscal year 2000, that recommendation would have meant a NASA budget of over $40 billion. The actual NASA budget for that year was $13.6 billion. During the past decade, neither the White House nor Congress has been interested in a reinvigorated space program. Instead, the goal has been a program that would continue to produce valuable scientific and symbolic payoffs for the nation without the need for increased budgets recent budget allocations reflect this continuing policy reality between 1993 and 2002 the government's discretionary spending grew in purchasing power by more than 25 percent defense spending by 15 percent and non-defense spending by 40 percent see figure 5.3-2 nasa's budget in comparison showed little change going from 14.31 billion in fiscal year 1993 to a low of 13.6 billion in fiscal year 2000 and increasing to 14.87 billion in fiscal year 2002 this represented a loss of 13% in purchasing power over the decade see figure 5.3-3 the lack of top-level interest in the space program led a 2002 review of the U.S. aerospace sector to observe that a sense of lethargy has affected the space industry and community. Instead of the excitement and exuberance that dominated our early ventures into space, we at times seem almost apologetic about our continued investments in the space program. Faced with this budget situation, NASA had the choice of either eliminating major programs or achieving greater efficiencies while maintaining its existing agenda. Agency leaders chose to attempt the latter. They continued to develop the space station, continued robotic planetary and scientific missions, and continued shuttle-based missions for both scientific and symbolic purposes. In 1994, they took on the responsibility for developing an advanced technology launch vehicle in partnership with the private sector. They tried to do this by becoming more efficient. Faster, better, cheaper became the NASA slogan of the 1990s. The flat budget at NASA particularly affected the human spaceflight enterprise. During the decade before the Columbia accident, NASA rebalanced the share of its budget allocated to human spaceflight, from 48% of agency funding in fiscal year 1991 to 38% in fiscal year 1999, with the remainder going mainly to other science and technology efforts. On NASA's fixed budget, that meant the Space Shuttle and the International Space Station were competing for decreasing resources, in addition, at least $650 million of NASA's human spaceflight budget was used to purchase Russian hardware and services related to U.S.-Russian space cooperation. This initiative was largely driven by the Clinton administration's foreign policy and national security objectives of supporting the administration of Boris Yeltsin and halting the proliferation of nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them. Earmarks Pressure on NASA's budget has come not only from the White House, but also from Congress. In recent years, there has been an increasing tendency for the Congress to add earmarks—congressional additions to the NASA budget request—that reflect targeted members' interests. These earmarks come out of already appropriated funds, reducing the amounts available for the original tasks. For example, as Congress considered NASA's fiscal year 2002 appropriation, the NASA Administrator told the House Appropriations Subcommittee with jurisdiction over the NASA budget that the agency was extremely concerned regarding the magnitude and number of congressional earmarks in the House and Senate versions of the NASA Appropriations Bill he noted the total number of House and Senate earmarks is approximately 140 separate items, an increase of nearly 50 percent over fiscal year 2001. These earmarks reflected an increasing fraction of items that circumvent the peer review process or involve construction or other activities that have no relation to NASA mission objectives. The potential Fiscal Year 2002 earmarks represented a net total of $540 million in reductions to ongoing NASA programs to fund this extremely large number of earmarks. Space Shuttle Program Budget Patterns For the past 30 years, the Space Shuttle Program has been NASA's single most expensive activity and of all NASA's efforts, that program has been the hardest hit by the budget constraints of the past decade. Given the high priority assigned after 1993 to completing the costly International Space Station, NASA managers have had little choice but to attempt to reduce the costs of operating the space shuttle. This left little funding for shuttle improvements the squeeze on the shuttle budget was even more severe after the office of management and budget in 1994 insisted that any cost overruns in the international space station budget be made up from within the budget allocation for human spaceflight rather than from the agency's budget as a whole the shuttle was the only other large program within that budget category figures five point three dash four and five point three dash five show the trajectory of the shuttle budget over the past decade. In fiscal year 1993, the outgoing Bush administration requested $4.128 billion for the space shuttle program. Five years later, the Clinton administration request was for $2.977 billion, a 27% reduction. By fiscal year 2003, the budget request had increased to $3.208 billion, still a 22 percent reduction from a decade earlier. With inflation taken into account, over the past decade there has been a reduction of approximately 40 percent in the purchasing power of the program's budget compared to a reduction of 13 percent in the NASA budget overall this budget squeeze also came at a time when the space shuttle program exhibited a trait common to most aging systems increased costs due to greater maintenance requirements a declining second and third tier contractor support base and deteriorating infrastructure maintaining the shuttle was becoming more expensive at a time when shuttle budgets were decreasing or being held constant only in the last few years have those budgets begun a gradual increase as figure 5.3-5 indicates most of the steep reductions in the shuttle budget date back to the first half of the 1990s in the second half of the decade the white house office of management and budget and nasa headquarters held the shuttle budget relatively level by deferring substantial funding for shuttle upgrades and infrastructure improvements while keeping pressure on NASA to limit increases in operating costs. End of section eighteen. Recording by Maria Casper.